This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson, along with my co-host, Josh Cumston. Today's guest is Bob Gannon, who is a pastor of Faith Community Bible Church and Pleasant View Bible Church in Aurora, Nebraska. Welcome to the program today, Bob. Well, thank you, Gordon. I appreciate that. Well, Bob, I want to start the program by having you share with our listeners just the transition you've gone through this last year and somewhat of the unique situation in that you pastor two churches in actually the same town. And so I think our listeners might be interested to know how that came about and how that's going. I had been uh, interim pastor for four different churches in Hamilton County, and of those four, two of them, Pleasant View Bible, I was interim for a year, and then Faith Community was interim and then moved kind of into a part-time at Faith Community. But my desire was to get back into full-time ministry after my youngest son, Jackson, graduated from high school, and he graduated last year. And so we knew that we wanted to go back into full-time ministry. And, and about that time, as I was at Faith, Pleasant View had approached me about their open position for senior pastor. I told them no, that I couldn't uh, do that at this time because of Faith Community in Aurora. So then they came back with the proposition, would you be willing to do both? And so we began to pray through that and, and began to communicate back and forth between churches also at that time, just an important thing, we were in the book of Esther on a study, and in chapter 4, Mordecai had asked Esther, what if God for such a time as this has placed you in the position that you are in to speak for God? And, and so that just echoed in my mind and in my heart for such a time as this, as God placed me in Hamilton County and specifically in Aurora for such a time as this to accomplish what he wants to do in, in through these two churches. So we're excited to be in Aurora and, and excited to be at Pleasant View and, and at Faith Community. Bob, could you just share a little bit about this morning's message, kind of what series you're, you're bringing that out of and, and why that was an important series for you guys to enter into in Aurora? Yeah, I've been in a series in, in the book of Galatians, and, and Galatians was really on my heart. Galatians is really about salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, grace alone, and not by the works of the law. And sometimes even in our Protestant churches, we can begin to somehow live by works or, or think that I'm good enough or I'm acceptable to God only if I do this or that. And it's bringing us back to the gospel of grace and the gospel of faith alone, and it's not by works. And and so it's just been an excellent series. We've been in chapter 3 recently, and Paul's comments to the Galatians, you know, one of the verses that really sticks out is, is verse 1 when he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I mean, he's just trying to gain an understanding. How can you all of a sudden fall back into works righteousness when you know the truth concerning faith alone in Christ alone? And then what he does is he goes in and brings evidence of the Old Testament. And that's what he does in chapter 3 and in, in what we're looking at, how he brings evidence of the Old Testament. To live by the law is to be cursed and that the promises that were given to Abraham were by faith, and that the promise to Abraham was made before the law came. And so it's just been exciting to really rethink our salvation and constantly realize my only standing in heaven is because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so just loving him and desiring to move in relationship with him, not because I have to, but because I love to and want to. With that, let's join Bob with today's message. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. 
Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Sometimes things are very obvious when they are before us. In verse 19, it's very obvious the direction that Paul is headed and the desire that he wants to communicate concerning the law. We have been in chapter 3 here for for time now. And in the beginning of chapter 3, he was basing his argument of the promise supersedes the law because of, of experience. And, and he goes into their experience of faith in Christ and their experience of the Holy Spirit. Then he argues from Scripture concerning the promise. And that the promise was that which God had foretold even in eternity past. And then he moved to illustrations uh, and a specific illustration of, of that of a last will and testament. And that that could not be changed, just like the promise that he made was, was a testament. It was a last will and testament of the promises that he would make. And then understanding that the promise that he made was not to us, but to his son. And so... The logical questions then is concerning what is the purpose of the law then? How do we understand the law? And there's three things that, that he addresses this morning. It shows us the law's shortfall, the law's success, and the third one I'm, I'm changing to keep the S. It's just the pastor in me. The law's as a supervisor. The law's shortfall, the law's success, and the law as a supervisor. He begins with the law's shortfall in verse 19. Why then the law? I mean, this is a very obvious question, right? I mean, he's been talking about faith superseding the law and the promise is, is more important. So obviously the question would come, why the law? And notice what Paul says. He says, it was added. Why then the law? And then his first response is, well, it was added. And verse 17 tells us that. What I am saying is this, that the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant. It was added. It was added 430 years later after the covenant was made. After the promise was given, it was added. But why was it added? Because of transgressions. What does Paul mean by that? That the law was added because of transgressions. Well, one thought is that the law came in order to deal with our bad behavior because of the transgressions, because of the sins. So, so God needed to bring forth the law so that he could begin to deter sin. Because of the consequences, the law has the ability to control transgressions. For it not only shows the difference between right and wrong, it also shows how those who break it 
should be punished. And therefore, the fear of punishment becomes a deterrent for wrong behavior, and it restrains evil. So the question is, is that God's purpose? There's three purposes that I see for the law. One is the purpose that I just talked about, to restrain evil, to put forth consequences for breaking the law, to somehow control it. The third purpose of the law we will see later on in Galatians chapter 5. When Paul begins to talk about how it is that we live as believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and how the law becomes that which, which leads us, shows us, but it's not the requirement. But here's the question. Was God's purpose in giving the law that Paul's talking about here done to help people avoid sin, or is it the opposite? Turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Here we see what I would consider the second purpose for the law. Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says that the law came in so that the transgression would increase. See that? Basically so that when sin increased, grace would abound even all the more. And then there's an obvious question that follows that. Then shouldn't we just go on sinning so that grace will abound even more? And, and I heard a sermon one time that said, yeah, we should. They didn't understand the purpose of the law. But I believe what Paul is talking about here is the opposite. I believe he's talking about that the law exposes sin for what it really is, that it is a violation of God's standards. In fact, the word transgression means the crossing of a legal barrier or boundary, the breaking of a specific law. In fact, the law has a way of of tempting us to break it, doesn't it? Right? If we decide to paint a wall out in the entryway, and then we hang a sign on there, do not touch wet paint. How many of you would be tempted to touch it? Right? Right? You want to touch it? You want you really want to see, is it really wet? Right? In Romans chapter 7, Paul speaks concerning this. In Romans 7, beginning in verse 7, he writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now look what his response is. Look what he says happens. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me, what? Coveting of every kind. It increased my desire to covet. That's what Paul's saying. It increased it. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. The sin became alive in me when the law came. And I wanted to do that. And I, and I died. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. You see, the shortfall of the law is that it doesn't give life, it kills it. It brings death. Rather than preventing sin, it provokes people to sin. It discloses the evil power of sin. And then he goes on and gives us another reason why the law falls short. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. It was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. You see, when you look at the account in Exodus chapter 19... You don't see the angels in that account. When God is giving the law to Moses, 
It's not there. But when you turn to Deuteronomy in chapter 33, towards the end of Moses' life, and he's addressing the people, he says this in in verse 1 and 2. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones at his right hand. There were flashing lightning for them. He came forth from 10,000 angels. I mean, that's just a myriad of angels. David speaks of that in in Psalm chapter 68 and and verse 17. And then if you turn over to Acts chapter 7... In verse 53, we see the account of Stephen. And he's proclaiming the truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes back into the Old Testament to prove his point. And when we get to verse 53 of chapter 7, Stephen says, You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. I mean, that was important to them. This was ordained by angels. So much so that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 And verse 2 says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. And so the idea of, of the law came through angels by the agency of a mediator, and this mediator was Moses. So here it is. Here's how it came, according to the word. That God spoke the law, and it came through the angels, and the angels gave it to Moses. And then Moses gave it to the people, third hand, right? It was given from God to the angels, and then from the angels to Moses, and then from Moses to man. Now, we can trust that, but how often do you trust third hand knowledge? Oftentimes, we call it gossip, don't we? Did you get that from the source, or did you get that second hand or third hand? That's the shortcoming of the law. For until the seed would come... This is referring back to verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, and this is Christ. That is, that the eternal unbreakable promise to Abraham and to his seed, which is Jesus Christ. That God spoke to Abraham as a friend speaks to a friend. But see, the promise was made to the seed. The promise was made to Jesus. Abraham was a witness. And so when Christ came, when the seed came, then the work of the law was finished. That's what he's saying. The work of the law was finished with all of its ceremonies, with all of its curses, and with all of its sacrifices to somehow appease God for failure to keep the law. Hebrews speaks clearly of that. For the law was limited because it came from God through angels to Moses and then to the people. But the promise came directly. Verse 20 says, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. A mediator. What is a mediator? Well, literally, a mediator is one who stands between at least two parties, if not more. A mediator is one who stands between two parties to to negotiate, to work through a covenant or or a promise. And so more than one is needed for the mediator. But when God made the covenant promise to Abraham, notice it was without a mediator. That's what he's talking about here. 
A mediator is not for one party only. Who's one party only? Who's the only party that we know is one? God, right? God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One. And so what he's saying here is that there's no mediator needed when God is only one and God makes the promise to himself. That's what he's talking about. When God made the covenant promise to Abraham, it was without a mediator because God was the only one involved in making the covenant. Abraham was a witness. He was the beneficiary, but he was not one of the parties who the covenant was being made with. Abraham had no part in establishing this covenant. And therefore, he had no part in keeping it. That responsibility was God's alone. That's the glory of the gospel. Because I know my failures. And we know Abraham's failures, right? That if it had been with man, and we were co-responsible for this, salvation would never happen because we would fail. God knew that we would fail. That's the law. That's why before the law, he gave the promise, and he made it with himself, that the promise would be fulfilled. People, the shortfall of the law is that it could not bring salvation because man could not keep the law. So how was the law successful? Verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Meaning, is the law against or or is the law opposed to to the promises of God? I mean, is the law come in and, and it's in opposition to the promise that God gave? That's a logical question because it seems like it, doesn't it? But he says, may it never be, even though the law falls short. It doesn't go against the promises of God. May it never be. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Basically what he's saying is is that the law is inferior to the promise because it could not impart life. So here's what he's saying. If the law could have imparted life, this is verse 21. Let me tell you what would be contrary to the promises. That's what he's doing. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. I'll give you an example of how it would be contrary. If the law was able to impart life, if you were able to take the law and live it and become righteous in and of yourselves, then that becomes contrary to the promises of God because Jesus Christ then died needlessly. And it was a tragic death. And God would be to blame to do it. That's contrary, because then it would not be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then he has this but, a very important transition here. But the scripture, verse 22, has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The word shut up, that was a four-letter word in our house. Our children were not allowed to say shut up to one another, nor were they allowed to say shut up to their mother or their father. So what does he mean here that the law has shut up everyone under sin? Here's the law's success. 
The success of the law is that it has shut up everyone under sin. The word shut up means to lock up securely. It means to enclose around on all sides with no way out. That's kind of what Paul is is speaking of in Ephesians in chapter 2 when when he writes this in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." He was talking about, look, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. The law has shut us up. There's no way of escape. What can a dead man do? That's really the question. There's nothing they can do. Nothing to revive themselves. That's what he's saying here. It moves you to the point that there's nothing you can do. Sin takes over because of the law. The transgression increases And we die. It smashes us with guilt and condemnation that we become hopeless with no way out. So that, the rest of verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I am hopeless because of the law. I am dead because of my sin. And I am in desperate need of a Savior who is Jesus Christ. You see, it shows us our desperation. It shows us our hopelessness of who we are without Christ. The law has its shortfalls because it cannot produce life. It has its successes in showing us our desperation, our hopelessness, and our need for a Savior. And therefore, the law becomes our supervisor, our tutor, Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Paul concludes his argument here this morning with two illustrations. And the first illustration is in verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. It shut us up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. To be kept in custody, it has the idea of a prison warden. It really has the idea of the prison cell itself that shuts you up, that we are inmates and the law is our jail keeper, and that we are shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. This is what he's meaning. He says that the law in this case has kept the Jews in protective custody. That God then brought the law after the promise to keep the Jews in protective custody, to keep them shut up until faith would come, to be that vessel that brings them to faith. It keeps them safe until it could lead them to Christ until it leads them to faith. And then he gives a second illustration here to reaffirm what he's saying here. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so we move from the prison cell, literally, to the nursery in this illustration. For the word here for tutor means guardian. It has 
the idea literally of pedagogue or pedagogy. In Greek history, what wealthy Greek families would do is that they would hire a slave who would become a pedagogue. And this slave would then be in charge of their child who had turned five or six years old. And they would be completely responsible for this child until adolescence. They would be with this child at all times. They would put this child to bed. They would wake this child up. They would make sure that the child was clothed. They would make sure that the child then went on to school. They had the supplies for school with them so that when the child got to school, then they set the child down in his chair, gave him his tools, and then in the schools in those days was a room for the pedagogues where they could sit until school was over, and then they would go back and retrieve their child under their care, and they would bring them home. They would make sure that they completed their studies. But also, they were the main disciplinarian for the child. They were the ones that inflicted the punishment. They spoke to them the truth concerning the laws of right and wrong, gave them the punishments, inflicted the punishments. He was responsible for them. And they're growing up. The pedagogue served the best interests of the child in many ways. And oftentimes there was a close bond that began to take place between the pedagogue and the child. What Paul is saying here is that in the plan of salvation, the law is the pedagogue. It was the law that raised the Jews from childhood to adolescence. It wasn't their schoolmaster to teach them how to get better and better until God would finally accept them. But on the contrary, it was that which disciplined them. It was that that told God's people what to do and then punished them when they failed to do it. They were like chaperones, keeping an eye on them. For the law was preparing God's children to enter their majority. And like any pedagogue, eventually the pedagogue would work himself out of a job. He would raise the child until the child got to the point of maturity that he could then enter society. That's what Paul is saying here concerning the law. The law is the pedagogue. It is that which leads the people to faith. It's that which leads people to the promise of Jesus Christ that shows them that they have a need, that shows them that they could never do it on their own, that shows them that they are failures in keeping the law and their only hope is Jesus Christ. Therefore, that is why it is so essential that when we proclaim the gospel, we talk about sin, we talk about the law. Because if they don't understand the law and they don't understand sin, then they will not understand why they need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. It is the supervisor, it is the tutor that leads them along to show them and bring them to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. We looked at Romans 5.20. Paul continued in verse 21. In verse 20 he writes, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it brings us to the Savior. It brings us to Jesus Christ. That's why we need to know the law of God. It has its shortfalls. It can't impart life. Its success is that it shows us how hopeless we are and how desperately we need a Savior. And then it comes alongside us to guide us and to lead us 
to the saving truth of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the purpose of the law, is to bring us to repentance in order that we might come into our right relationship with Jesus Christ, who imparts life and righteousness to us that we begin to live the right way. And it's because of Him. We need the law to lead us to Christ, for only when the law reveals our sin will we ever start to look for the free grace that God has for us in the gospel. The world needs the gospel. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Bob Gannon of Faith Community Bible Church and Pleasant View Bible Church in Aurora, Nebraska. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Thank you.